Now, so far, we've worked our way through John chapter 6, and, and we saw at the end of John chapter 6 that many of those people who were following after Jesus, they were no longer following him. If you'll remember, Jesus claimed that he was the bread from heaven that had come to earth. And when he said that, this kind of this mass exodus of people stopped following him. But those that remain, Jesus asked them a question in John chapter 6, verses 67 through 69. This is what he said. He says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Isn't that the question for us? Have you come to believe and know that He is the Holy One of God? These true disciples, they continued on with Jesus. But what Jesus does at this point when we get to John chapter 7, kind of the pinnacle of His ministry in terms of outreach happened in John chapter 6. Now that we move into John chapter 7, his goals change and his focus change. Now his focus is going to be on ministering to his disciples. He's preparing them for his departure. And so we see in the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus is still in the Galilee region. And in this area right now that he's at, there's a gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of about seven months. And we'll see what Jesus did in those seven months. But what we're going to see this morning is that there are going to be four different responses to who Jesus claimed to be and the miracles he performed. And that's a question for us. How do you respond to Jesus? Let's take a look at the text. John chapter 7, we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. So how do people respond to Jesus? The first thing we see this morning is that religious people feared Jesus. Religious people feared Jesus. A religious person is anyone who's trusting in their own religious efforts. They're trusting in rituals and traditions, but they're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Jesus is a threat to those who trust in their own religious works. Now, it begins here in chapter 1 with after these things. That's That's a time marker. We saw that same statement in chapter 5, we saw it in chapter 6, and now we see it again right here in chapter 7. It's a time interval. And the time interval from chapter 6 to chapter 7 is seven months. So so what did Jesus do during those seven months? Well, the first thing is he's avoiding the populated sinners. He's sticking close to his disciples, and, and he ends up going down to Tyre and Sidon, which is in the north and west by the Mediterranean Sea, and then he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, down into the area of Decapolis. Now, Jesus is spending the majority of his time now with his disciples. He's helping them. He's spending time with them. He's ministering to them. Now, he's still doing a little bit of ministry. He's still doing some miracles and some healings, but he asks his disciples a very important question. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? That's a great question. If you were to ask that of any of your friends today, it'd be interesting just to hear their response. But the response, the way the disciples says, Well, some people say that you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Others say that you're Elijah, the prophet. Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say that you're one of the prophets. There's a confusion amongst the people, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, yeah, but who do you say 
that I am? Isn't that the question for us? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because the way that you answer that will be the way that you also respond to Jesus. And we know that Peter, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's going to try to help his disciples understand he has to suffer. He has to die. I think they're still thinking he's a political ruler. They're still thinking he's going to somehow overthrow Rome. So Jesus in Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and he'll be raised up on the third day. Now, we know that Peter takes them to the side and he says, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. He just puts him right in his place. He's saying, no, this is why I came. I came to suffer. This is God's call on my life, to suffer and die for all the sins of the world. But guys, he's come here to this earth so that they'll understand that he didn't come to start a political movement, but he came to appoint kingdom citizens in this world. And they were the beginning of that. They were the seeds of God's kingdom on this earth. And we are part of that also. You were a sojourner in a foreign land. You were called into this earth, but don't get too comfortable. Now, I want you to answer an important question this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, the Feast of the Booze or Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three great feasts of Israel. All the male Jews at that time were supposed to go up to Jerusalem to participate in that feast. And the Jews, what they do, they, they'd build these temporary structures. They were like tents or booths. And they'd commemorate the deliverance from Egypt by the hand of God. But these structures, this practice of building these tents, it was a foreshadow. These were a temporary structure to, to foreshadow that, that this is a frail existence. It points to Jesus. It's, a, it's the gospel message. This life here is uncertain. And Jesus came to this earth and he tabernacled amongst us. And he came to rescue us from being enslaved to sin. And he came to free us. And then he calls us to sojourn in this land. We are his ambassadors. And that's exactly what the Feast of the Booze did. It was such a picture of the gospel. Now, we know that the gospel teaches that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And not only are we saved by his grace, but guys, we walk in his grace. And the evidence of your faith is how you live out Christ before others. Do they see Christ in you the way you serve? Do they see Christ in you that you obey the scriptures? Do they see Christ in you the way you use the finances that God has given you? Do they see Christ in you? Because that is the evidence that he is alive. But many of the Jews in Jesus' day, they didn't realize that Jesus was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, particularly the Jewish leaders, they felt threatened by Jesus. They feared Jesus. And they feared him so much they wanted to kill Jesus. If you look at verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews means those religious leaders. And the response of the Jewish leaders to Jesus and his claims was fear. The response to his miracles was fear. 
they realized that Jesus was a threat to their traditions. And by the way, they were man-made traditions. Right after John chapter 6, Jesus is confronted by these religious leaders. And listen to what he says to them in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 9. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They were teaching as if it was God's truth, but they were only precepts of men. And so these religious leaders, they fear Jesus because what he does, he points to the very lies that they're speaking. He points to their hypocrisy. And this fear, it caused them to want to kill him. People who are religious, people who trust in their religious traditions, who trust in their works, they're caught on a religious treadmill. But often people who are religious, they fear Jesus. See, a religious person is comfortable in man-made traditions. They're comfortable in the things that they do for God. They think that somehow they can appease God by their actions. But when the true gospel comes out, that it's not by what they do, but what Christ has done, it is in His righteousness that we stand, not our own. Ooh, that causes them to stumble. It causes them to fear. And Jesus has an answer for that kind of thinking. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus had already told these religious leaders what the will of his Father was in John chapter 6, verse 40. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself, I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Because there is no other way to the Father. That is the will of the Father. It is not doing some religious work, although religious works are an evidence of your faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you trust in Him alone? Do you trust in Him for forgiveness? For the religious Jew to base their eternal existence on trust in Jesus, this was a very fearful thing. But guys, this applies to all religious people. And all the religions of the world, they have some kind of a structure built in which they can somehow obtain a certain level to either nirvana or God. Somehow they're going to appease God by their effort. All of them want to be recognized by men. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, verses 5 and 6. It says, they do their deeds to be noticed by men. And they love the place of honor at the banquets and chief seats and synagogues. Those who trust in religion, they love their position and they love their praise that they get from other men. But instead, Jesus has a different plan for his people. Listen to Matthew 15, 11 and 12. He says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So for the religious person, Christianity is fearful. Salvation is not based on, on God's, I mean, salvation is not based on keeping God's law, but it's based on, on Christ's free gift of grace. We need to trust in Jesus because he kept the law perfectly, because we can't. And people must trust in his life and his righteousness and oftentimes you find that people fear Christianity, and you see this throughout the world today. You see it with Islamic extremists in the Middle East, ISIS and others that are killing Christians. 
You see it in India with Hindu extremists that are killing Christians by the thousand and destroying churches. You even see it in our own government which is trying to break down the laws that protect religious freedom. These Jewish leaders were so scared of Jesus and what he taught that they wanted to get rid of him by murder. And so Jesus, he avoids to go to Jerusalem, but he's going to be going there soon. Now, Timothy Keller in his book, A Reason for God, he speaks about the Greco-Roman period at that time when Jesus was alive. He says the Greco-Roman world's religious views were seemingly tolerant of many, they had many gods, everyone had his or her own god, but the practices of the culture were quite brutal. The, Gre the Greco-Roman had a large um, distance between the rich and the poor. By contrast, Christians insisted that there was only one God, the dying Savior, Jesus Christ. Their lives and their practices welcomed those that the culture marginalized. The early Christians mixed people from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those in that area and at that time. Women in that society had a very low status. Female babies were often killed. Forced marriages were forced upon the women and a lack of economic security was, was being had by women. But Christianity afforded women much greater security and equality than had previously existed in the ancient world. Also, when terrible urban plagues hit, it was the Christians that went in and cared for the people, oftentimes at the cost of their own lives. So why were Christians so different than all the other religions? It was because the Christian practiced sacrificial service, generosity, peacemaking, just like their master Jesus did. And at the very heart of their view was a reality, was a man who died for his enemies, and he prayed for their forgiveness. Reflection on who Jesus is, it can only have the natural response of love, that we want to honor him for who he is. But for those that are trapped in religion, that response is fear. The first thing we see is that religious people fear Jesus. There's a second thing we see. The family members, they doubted Jesus. The family members, they doubted Jesus. I don't know how it is in your family, but I can tell you, sometimes the hardest people to reach for Christ are those that are closest to us, our family members. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that, you, so that your disciples may also see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So it starts here with, therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea. Now the, the Feast of Booze, it, it's a festive time, but, but this is not a festive time for Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is a very difficult time for him. This is a time that open hostility began to, where they began to come after Jesus. Ever since Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, they were seeking to kill him. But I want you to know right up front, Jesus did have half-brothers and sisters. There are some denominations that teach that he didn't, but I'd like to share with you a scripture. It's Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 57. They said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother, Mary, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. How difficult it is for us guys sometimes to reach those who are close to us in our family. 
how difficult it is sometimes when we know the love of Christ and how bad we want them to understand it. But yet there seems sometimes to be this wall with those that we're closest to. But it's hard to believe that, that those that were Jesus' siblings, that they would have a hard time believing that he's the Messiah. I mean, they had spent over 30 years with him. They were the closest to him. They could test him. They'd seen him, but they still didn't believe. Now look at verse 3. They say, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. What they're basically doing here is they're beginning to mock him. And I think what they're trying to do is tell him how to do ministry. I think they heard that in John chapter 6 that most of his people, those disciples, all walked away. So they're trying to tell him, hey, hey, you're a political leader. You had this big crew. Why don't you go back to Jerusalem, do these kind of signs, and maybe you can get that crowd back. I think that's what they're trying to say to him. But one commentator put it like this. He said, their comments appear to have a dual motive. First, they may have wanted to see Jesus perform miracles so they could decide for themselves whether or not his works were genuine. And second, they were probably expecting a political Messiah. Thus, in their minds, the acid test of Jesus' Messiahship would be at Jerusalem, the political center of Israel, and not in Galilee. If the ruling authorities at Jerusalem signed off on Jesus, his brothers would also accept him as Messiah. And so, when you look at that, if you look at the way that they say verse 4, I think they're thinking that he's going to be a political ruler. It makes sense if you read verse 4, it says, they said, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Can you hear the challenge? I've got three brothers. They're always challenging me, and I'm always challenging them. That's the way brothers are. And I think they're challenging him here. Hey, if you want to be a political leader, go to Jerusalem, man, because that's where it's happening. If you really want to make a movement start, it's got to happen in Jerusalem, because that's where everything that really matters happens. And then they give him a final challenge here, and I think they're mocking him on this one. They say, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. The way they say that, it reminds me of Satan. When he was challenging Jesus in the wilderness. That's in Matthew chapter 4. Satan said to Jesus in Matthew 4, 3, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. In Matthew 4, 6, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And here his brothers say, if you do these things, Guys, they doubt his authority. They doubt that he's the Messiah. I'm not even sure they think that he can really perform miracles. And we know they didn't believe because look at verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers were believing in him. But Jesus is not about to yield to them. He didn't yield to the crowds who wanted to make him king. And he's not going to yield to his own brothers here that, that maybe want him to be this political ruler. And by the way, their lack of faith was prophesied about in Psalm 69, verse 8. It says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For those of us in Christ, this is a very common story. It is in my life, and I'm sure it is with many of you. And sometimes I think that our, that our family members, the reason it's so hard for them is they kind of like the old Rob. The guy that got drunk with them and hung out and partied. And, and now this new Rob, they really don't like this Rob. Or maybe they're just kind of hanging back because they want to see if I'm really going to revert back to who I was. Can I tell you something? Act in a manner worthy of the gospel. Because the way you act, the way you live out Christ before your siblings, it means all the difference. Because they can only see Christ through you. Live out Jesus. And the way you love them, you love others. The way you serve him.
at this point, even if you were perfect, I don't know that your family would believe because Jesus was perfect and his family didn't believe. Guys, I'm the last of six siblings. I have three brothers and two sisters. I was the first one to come to Jesus. I came to know Christ in 1989. Now, many of you know my story because I've been in this church since 1999. But in 1989, in my car, I received Christ, and it was one of those dramatic conversions. I mean, I was changed. And so, in 1992, I gave my oldest brother, Stu, a book by Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. I said, man, you got to read this book. And two weeks later, he called me and he said, Rob, I received Christ. Man, I rejoiced. I was like, wow, how cool is that? Three years of prayer, man, in the kingdom. And so I started praying for my family. My brother Gordon was next. After I got saved, the very next day, I was at my brother's house with a Bible. Started praying for my brother Gordy. Man, he was a hard-hearted brother. And he would not. He didn't even want to talk about Jesus. But in 2007, my brother was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. That humbles a man. And in 2011, outside of an In-N-Out burger shop, we sat in my car and he bowed his heart to Christ. And I had the privilege to lead my brother in the prayer to receive Christ. And, and then after that, about two months later, he was almost unable to talk. And then in 2013, the disease took his life. But I know I'm going to see my brother Gordy again. Well, my brother Rick, after my brother Gordon's death, was really shaken by that. And my brother Rick and I started talking about Jesus a lot. My brother Rick in 2014 came up here to look for a job. So I had the whole weekend with him. And guys, I was taking it really easy because I had kind of hammered my family in the beginning. And so, man, I was kind of backing off. But my brother kept wanting to talk about Jesus and talking about Jesus. And finally I said, Rick, what's holding you back? And he said, I don't think I can live it. I said, right, you can't. And then I got to share the gospel. My brother Rick in my dining room received Christ and has been walking with the Lord ever since 2014. Well, I had the privilege to baptize my brother Rick and my mom together because my mom received the Lord in 2014, and they together invited my sister Barbara to this church in 2015, and I was preaching up in Pastor Farouz's room, and, and I'm not kidding you, the moment the music started, she started to cry, and she cried all the way through my message. I know some of you want to cry too, but <laughs> it's a different kind of cry. And then at lunch, I had a chance to talk to her about Jesus, and in my house, she received Christ. What happened to me that day, we were having a baptism at my house, and so I got to baptize my, my sister in 2015 in Jesus. Okay, I got one more, Libby. Libby does not know Jesus, so I'd like all of you with me to be praying for my sister Libby. Now, why did I share that? It's to encourage you. God is faithful. Do not give up. He wants your family in the kingdom just as he wanted you in the kingdom. Pray, pray, pray. He is the faithful one. Two things we've seen. The religious people feared Jesus. The family members doubted Jesus. And there's a third one. The world system hated Jesus. The world system hated Jesus. The world system and all those who are in it do not have Jesus. All those who do not have Jesus are controlled and dominated by Satan. And Satan hates Jesus. And so the world hates Jesus. Look at verses six through nine. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. But the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time 
has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus says here in verse 6, my time has not yet come. So Jesus is not going to allow his brothers to dictate when he's to go up to Jerusalem or how he's to go up to Jerusalem. And he understands that everything that he does, it's orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. He said the very same thing to his mother at the wedding in Cana. He said, my hour has not yet come. This divine timetable is revealed by the father to the son. And he already knows that it's going to be at the Passover in about six months from then, the following spring. And so the Lord does not want to enter into Jerusalem publicly. He doesn't want to stir the pot. But he is going to enter into Jerusalem publicly at the triumphal entry at the Passover. So he says to his brothers in verses 6 and 7, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it always hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Now, Jesus, he's exercising caution here because he understands that the Jewish leaders, they want to kill him. And we understand that God is always in control. But at the fall, God has allowed Satan to, to have influence and control over those that do not know Christ and also the governments of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, John wrote this. He says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So all the government and all the people without Christ are influenced by Satan's evil schemes and this world system that, that's under Satan's control. And Jesus, he called Satan the ruler of this world. He said this in John 14, 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing on me. And so speaking of Satan's influence on these religious leaders of his day, this is what Jesus says in John 8, 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie, and he speaks of his own nature, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. And then Paul the Apostle puts it like this. He says in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Those who do not know Christ they are influenced, influenced by the evil one. He has a hold of their heart. And this is why Jesus says to his brothers right there in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. You see, Jesus came to be the light of the world, but his brothers didn't want the light because they were still in darkness. They didn't want to know the truth of Christ. Jesus wasn't ready to go up yet. In verse 8 and 9, he says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Again, his time had not yet fully come. Again, this is speaking of God's sovereign hand, how God is orchestrating the events. God has a timetable. And God knew exactly when Jesus was to go into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, exactly when he would go and be tried and, and suffer and then go to the cross. And we know this because when Peter preached his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, this is what he said. He said, this man Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. 
And Jesus knows that his brothers are going to go up there and, and they're going to probably go in a large caravan with all the people, but he hangs back. Now, I've always wondered, this is predetermined by God. I mean, what's it matter if he goes up there? I mean, why does Jesus, why is he so cautious? Have you ever wondered that? I think I found the answer. And the answer is found in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. In Luke 9 through 12, this is the story where, where again, Jesus is, is, is being tempted by Satan. And listen to the text. It says, and Satan led him to Jerusalem. This is verse 9. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is said, you shall not put your Lord God to the test. That's why he won't go to Jerusalem. He trusts in the word of God and he will not put the Lord God to the test. And so he hangs back. And then he goes up privately. He kind of sneaks in, kind of the background. He, he waits until everybody gets there. It's already taken place. And most scholars feel that he went through Samaria. And he kind of comes in and he goes into the temple. He was there, but he went there quietly. Sometimes, you know, people, they, <clears throat> they say that they love God. But oftentimes their actions don't really display that, that love for God. Sometimes I think people say they love God, but what they really love is what God will give them. And as a way of example, I was trying to think this one through. It's, it's kind of like, let's just say that you're ready to be married. And, and so the, the young man realized that, that he's going to receive a significant trust fund if he gets married. And, and so he shares with his potential bride. He says, you know what? When we get married, we're going to come into a boatload of cash. And she, of course, tells him, well, you know, I'm not in this for the, for the money. I'm, I'm in it because of you, for who you are. But then just a, a few weeks before the, the expected wedding date, he finds out that he's not going to receive that trust fund. And his fiancée, she gets so upset, she calls off the wedding and she walks away. What do you think if she was to do that? Did she love him for him or for what she could get from him? Sometimes I think people are in the Christian faith for what they can get from God. But do you love him? Do you love Christ? Because the world system hates him. Three things. Religious people feared Jesus. The family members doubted Jesus. And the world system hated Jesus. And here's the final one. The crowds were confused about Jesus. The crowds were confused about Jesus. Because the majority of the people in the crowds, I think they, there was just a kind of all this talk going around and there was just kind of confusion, confusion kind of surrounding who Jesus was. Look at verses 10 through 13. It says, but when the, his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for the fear of the Jews. So again, his brothers, they go up there and he kind of hangs back and he, he goes up there in secret. He, he goes through Samaria and he shows up because he knows, it says in verse 11, that the Jews were seeking him. But it seems to me that as I read this text, there's just a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. 
Look at verse 12 again. It says, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. And others are saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Now, this idea about Jesus being a good man, this is really common. I mean, we hear it all the time today, right? Jesus is, is a really good man. He's, he's, a, he's a good teacher. But I got to tell you, when, when you understand the claims of Christ, when you understand what he wrote and what he said, you understand that there is no way you can think of him just being a good man. He's either God or he's crazy. Now, how do I know that? I'm going to give you a few examples. Jesus claimed that the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that they spoke of him. In John chapter 5, verse 46, he said that Moses, he wrote about me. He says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, that the Old Testament scriptures were concerning him. And then multiple times, Jesus made claims that showed that he was God. If you remember in, in John chapter 8, he was, he was kind of having this, this debate with these religious leaders, and, and they were basically claiming that they were saved because they were ancestors of Abraham. Well, Jesus, of course, disagreed with them, and they were upset. And in, in John chapter 8, verse 58, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus said this, he said, before Abraham was born, I am. If you remember last week, I talked about ego me, I am. That is the, the statement that God made to Moses when he asked him, who should I say that's sending me? And God said, tell him that the great I am is sending you. He used the same name as God. And how I know he's claiming to be God there is that those Jews, they picked up stones to kill him. He claimed to be God. There's another example to his divinity. After he resurrected, Thomas was known as the doubter. And Thomas says, I cannot believe unless I'm able to put my finger in the hole in his hand and my hand in the side that was done by the spear. And suddenly Jesus shows up and Thomas falls to the ground and he says, my Lord, my God, and he begins to worship Jesus. Guess what Jesus does? He accepts the worship. He let Thomas worship him. Why? Because he's God. And again, in Luke chapter 2, or actually Mark chapter 2, Jesus, he, heal, he heals a paralytic. And before he heals him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. I could go on and on. Jesus is so much more than a good man. He is God in the flesh. And because he is God in the flesh, he leads no one astray. As a matter of fact, he is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. How do you respond to Jesus? I hope it's like Peter, who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, I give you my worship. Let's close in prayer. Father, how grateful we are that the truths of, of who Jesus is are, are in the Scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit in our lives. Those of us that know Christ, we know it was you, Lord, because at one time we hated Jesus as well. But Lord, you've saved us, you've redeemed us, you've changed us, and we're so grateful to you, Lord. I pray even now today as it's a day of worship, it's a, it's a day of Sabbath, it's your day, Lord, let us rest in Jesus, for he is our hope and he is our strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name.